This is Deconstruction and the Arts, episode 51 of the Renew the Arts podcast. Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Michael Minkoff and Abby Sitterly. Our motto at Renew the Arts is liberate Christian creativity, and we're doing this through cultivating Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit renewthearts.org forward slash donate. If you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or a tender. All right, well, we're here again with Abby Sitterly, and we're going to be discussing art and deconstruction today. Which it's is a great topic. Yes, way fun. And so I invited her on here. You're going to be on a deconstruction panel here in a minute up in New York, right? Yeah. Yep. In a couple of weeks, we're uh, meeting at the University of Rochester, a couple churches in the area, my church and another, actually. And uh, we're going to do a panel discussion on deconstruction, what it is, how to navigate it, um, what reconstruction might look like. So really looking forward to that. It's going to be a great panel of diverse voices. So excited to be a part of it. Yeah. So first off, what exactly is deconstruction and why is it badly named? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the crux of the issue. I think deconstruction means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And if I can give the prescription a little too early, I think that's part of the reason we find ourselves in a culture awash with deconstruction. Um, So some people will define it as uh, critically thinking what your faith is, uh, what your origin stories of your faith are, um, your experience with the church, um, and critically thinking through those things that might seem more like cultural mandates than biblical ones. Uh, But then other people also view deconstruction as the dismantling of their faith entirely. And so basically, whoever you chat with, you're going to get a different definition, I think. Right. And what are the, I mean, the origins of the word are important, I think, in these terms. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, French existentialism is uh, the name of the game, I think, with deconstruction. Uh, That's its origin. And it basically comes down to dismantling the motivations behind a lot of our societal constructs and such. Um, But ultimately, I don't think that's what people are necessarily referencing when they're talking about deconstruction. Yeah, definitely in a lot of conversations that I've had with people, their idea of deconstruction is not really oriented toward at least not interrogating their own motivations for religious experience, but mm, more talking mm-hmm. about the doubts and suspicions concerning the positive motivations of authority structures within the church that they feel have been abusive in various different ways. And it almost always ends up being a discussion of power dynamics, abuse, and things like that, which oh, sure. is mm-hmm. worth talking about. But I I don't know, at, th- at that point, you're pretty far gone from an deconstruction (laughs) that's not exactly what you're doing at that point um Mm -hmm. yeah so so it gets a little bit muddled and i'm cool with that i think probably what you said in terms of critically thinking about your experiences with the church and the human institution of christianity or religion is probably more what is actually happening um or at least Mm -hmm. what people are saying is happening oh sure I don't think that, 
well, this is my experience, so I'll, I'll just talk to this. And, I, and I've seen this happen over and over again. People talk about critical thinking as if the thing that caused them to question their religious experience was a new idea or thought. Mm-hmm. And so they act like it is a rational process that there's been a maturing of thinking or a development of thinking that has caused them to reassess these things that they had been taught and find that the things they've been taught are shallow and or or wrong or you know whatever yeah i don't actually think that's usually what happens i agree with you (laughs) and i think it's dishonest to say that that is what happens i think Mm -hmm. what i have seen over and over and over again is that deconstruction is either a volitional or affectional disassociation with the church that then creates a need for a rational justification for that break. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So when I say volitional, I mean having to do with the rules or having to do with the, the laws, you know, so you have a conflict of will. These authorities want me to do this. I actually want to do something else. Mm-hmm. And so then I come up post hoc with a rational justification why the rule they've given me is nonsensical or rational or unreasonable in some way or another. But the the crux of the break had to do with a difference of wills, not with a difference of thinking. So I think explaining it mm-hmm. as a critically thought out assessment of your original stance is really disingenuous. I don't think that's honest. And I think people need to be honest about that. That absolutely the vast majority of breaks with the church occur for volitional and affectional and not rational reasons to begin with. Now, I'm not saying they aren't rationalized. I'm just saying that this idea that critical thinking is the foundation of it is, in my experience from what I've seen, and I'm, I'm talking both locally and not so locally, that's not very honest. That's not a very honest um, assessment of what's actually occurring. That most of the time they say, yeah. I hate the church's rules or the church is ugly, and then I have reasons afterward that I come up with to justify why that's the case in my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong because I don't think that a volitional or affectional disassociation with the church or disconnect with the church is wrong. I mean, I, we have them. That's the thing. It's just mm-hmm. uh, everyone has them. If you live in the church for long enough, you're, there's going to be rules from your authorities or from the tradition or whatever that you don't like. And there's also going to be things about your tradition or the people in it that also you find ugly or unpleasant in various ways. Yeah, I think the uh, to a couple of your points there, I think the idea that deconstruction is a novelty, that you are the first person to have these questions, the first person to doubt like this, to assess and scrutinize uh, church leadership and uh, biblicism, which in some senses really does need to be critically thought, but to assume that those things are unique to your own intellectual journey has a sense of hubris to it, I think. Um, But then to add to that as well, there is a sense of hubris also in intellectualizing uh, that faith journey, because if we look at like what St. Augustine wrote about the will, it's the will that orders the mind. It's your desires that lead a lot of your intellectual and rational faculties. And unless we point out that actually it is at the seat of our desire and the seat of our will that tends to direct where our beliefs go, we're going to miss a huge, huge dynamic underneath the deconstruction movement um, that people are just overtly rationalizing. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, so I'm on board with you on that. I also think one of the really 
cool parts of understanding that a lot of the deconstructional motivations are affectional or will-oriented is that you recognize the importance of the arts and beauty and the good life in that whole process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I think one of the things that's been problematic of people that are leaving the church is that they carry this thought that thoughts are what make everything happen, that you have an idea, mm-hmm. and then the idea is what produces uh, your life in various different ways and your perspectives and your actions and your, your, your protocols and your etiquette. I actually, I think that in many cases, what happens is what produces thoughts, new thoughts that people otherwise right. maybe wouldn't have. And I'm not saying that ideas don't have consequences. I guess I'm just saying the the with a lot of people that I've talked to that come from you know that are in the deconstruction process, they really do believe that somehow or another they thought their way into errors and they're going to think their way out of them. And mm-hmm. uh, very often that's just not the case. Like very often that's not at all what's going on. And what they're really dealing with are a complicated and entangled matrix of preferences, loves, mm-hmm. distastes, and repulsions mixed with rules and pragmatism and all these other things that they're having to actually, uh, well, they should be assessing and interrogating. That would be deconstruction. But instead, mm-hmm. they're almost assuming that their wants or their desires or their their wills or their whatever are, in some sense, immutable, and then coming up with reasons why they should be supported after the fact. Well, that's just self-determinism. Yeah, Ultimately, it it's rooted in that existentialist philosophy that you determine uh, what you believe based off whatever your will is communicating to you is the best route for meaning. I mean, if we can ascribe meaning to things and meaning isn't transcendent or eternal, um, then that means we can basically believe whatever the heck we want, whether that's actually founded with any sort of evidence or um, if it, well, what it actually does too is it keeps you from doubting enough, I think, ultimately. Like a lot of deconstruction and um, those that are really struggling with that doubt they tend to not doubt enough by not doubting their own faculties, doubting their own prejudices and presuppositions, and instead assuming that they have the right toolbox for whatever huge 2,000-year-old religions there are um, and saying the things that I'm deciding with what I've got, that's enough. I don't need to question my own questioning. It's it's a a lot of assumption. Yeah, no, that's, again, really good point. That issue of questioning your questioning is is an important, like, I, th- I would say almost fundamental thing that needs to mm-hmm. happen within deconstruction. And I agree with you. There's this thing where they're like, uh, this is what I want, so this must be good. And therefore, if there's any ideas or rules out there that, that contradict that, then those rules or ideas mm-hmm. must be wrong. It's like, well, I don't think you're fully yeah. interrogating why it is that you desire for that to be the case. And mm-hmm. a lot of this is just fan- fantasy. And the the dividing line between, I guess, existentialism and determinism on one side and fantasy on the other is not actually that thick. No, I'd agree. Given the loose, very, very loose, obviously, uh, idea of what deconstruction actually is, why do you think it's so prevalent right now? And I, and I don't mean just the term. Obviously, mm-hmm. the term has gained some currency. But I, I'm talking about the, that process of um, really 
in many ways, critically thinking about your experience with religion in such a way that many people at least leave, you know, exit institutional or human religious uh, places? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I should add to, um, I'm sure some listeners would probably hear the last 15 minutes and go, you guys are reading this in such a cynical light. And that that could be true. Um, but ultimately, I think Blaise Pascal says it best when he said there's enough light to see and enough darkness to obfuscate. And I think ultimately, there are uh, a lot of resources that people can uh, utilize and enjoy um, walking through their faith journey. But at the same time, like we said, it's not always an intellectual thing. You can't, if you can argue someone into something, you can certainly argue them out of it and back and forth again. Um, But to your point currently, that is, the more cynical view than more people or most people would probably assume that we would say, uh, which is essentially that like there's a lot of church abuse. Uh, there's a lot of spiritual abuse. I'm someone who's experienced a lot of that. And um, when I was a kid and when I uh, became uh, a teenager in early college, I fell into a lot of um, new age mysticism and that sort of thing because I longed for spirituality, but I didn't want it in the framework that defined my youth. And what that framework was, was a lot of hypocritical um, Christians acting very contrary to the way that they were speaking about the values they learned from Christ and following him and from the Bible. And I couldn't equate the two. So there was a spiritual longing, but at the same time, I wanted to have any other answer for that than uh, the Christian one. Because by that point, the Christian faith had become so bankrupt to me that I thought, well, how could I ever believe that these values that seem that people seem to say Christianity espouses, like love and patience and honesty and integrity, like none of the Christians that I know have really exhibited that, especially the ones in leadership. But I remember talking to my dad at one point, and I was really like bemoaning uh, a lot of the stuff that I had experienced as a kid. And he was like, Abby, you can either look at other people for what your view of God is, or you could look at God for how you understand other people. And that shook me. That totally flipped the framework for me. So I think a lot of people currently are really trying to wrestle with some very sincere questions, which are, why is the church so prone to um, blaspheming its own beliefs? Why does it espouse cult-like behavior? These are fair questions, and we should absolutely like approach them head-on with integrity um, and f- try to find if there's anything wanting to these ideas, because a lot of times they are just cultural interpretations of uh, what the Bible says and what Christ is, the truth of what he preaches. Um, but then I think there are times that we are looking at deconstruction and seeing all of the broken stuff going on in institutions and going, cool, um, I'm just going to like reject all of that carte blanche. And it's not actually from a place of wanting to make it better or wanting to see the resurrection and all of that uh, Calvary death. It's actually just wanting to persist in your sin, I think. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, depending on how you define sin, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, well, I used to think this was a sin or that was a sin and I know that it's Mm -hmm. not anymore. Um, but I would agree with you that, again, this is a, a post hoc situation, generally speaking. In the scriptures, it talks about they hate me because they love the darkness. There is a sense in which the love for the darkness creates a predisposition that needs to justify itself after the fact. 
Mm -hmm. I regularly read essays where they will talk about how the Bible doesn't actually condemn homosexuality. Most of the time, these are people who will say, I take the Bible very seriously, and I believe that it has been misinterpreted or misunderstood in these various different ways. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then you'll find out at the end that so-and-so is a gay Christian living in dot, dot, dot. You look at that, and I'm just saying, and, and I'm not necessarily saying you can't advocate for something where you have a vested interest in it. However, whenever you are advocating for something and you have a vested interest in it being true, Excuse me for saying, well, you have a vested interest in that being true. Could that be mm-hmm. affecting whether or not you read it in an honest and open way? The truth, truly, the truth doesn't care one way or right. the other. Mm-hmm. So if it's, it, you know, if you're actually going to be a seeker of truth, you have to be open to the possibility that things go one way or the other. And you can't really pre-constrain because that's actually literally mm-hmm. what prejudice is. It's pre-judgment. You've already decided beforehand where it's going to go, and you're right. unwilling to let it go any other way than that way. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean by sin as being a credence for right. it. Right. Like my, my questioning is basically, well, um, I don't want to believe that the Bible would restrict me to this mm-hmm. particular moral law, or I don't mm-hmm. believe that Christ, if he's actually desiring my good for his glory, um, would ask me to make such a sacrifice, or no matter what the um, proclivity is that you want to explore. Ultimately, I think if people were more transparent even mm-hmm. on their own reasons for deconstructing, I think we would find a lot of the time that Like you said, people have already decided what they want to do, and they will find the rational justification to do it. Um, And I think we would see the opposite of that in a way, in a less stereotypical journey that it seems to be. It seems like people take a very predictable number of steps, which usually start with um, ideas about errancy and inerrancy or something like that. Not always, but sometimes. And things seem to spiral very quickly. Right. This is kind of what you're talking about with the nature of like humanity. Like if we are depraved, first of all, that's a really predictable thing for all of us. Like I was born (laughs) into a depravity that is going to color a lot of my thinking. Scripture predicts that. Mm -hmm. It says you're going to doubt. You're going to want to rebel against God. It's in your nature. You have a proclivity to do that. And the only times that you don't do that are because that's the spirit of God working within you. Like everything good in me is Christ and everything bad in me is just me. (laughs) And if scripture is predicting that and saying, hey, those desires and those doubts that you're feeling that are in rebellion to Christ, those are normal and you should almost expect them. And But don't dwell in that and dwell in that doubt, especially without taking it to Christ. Like he's the one that we should be bringing all of this in front of. If we're living before God's face, quorum Deo, we got to bring the doubts, the um, proclivities for sin, our innate human rebellion against who God is. We can bring all of that. So I think it's very telling to me that a lot of this is very stereotypical, um, but certainly there are exceptions to what I think is the rule. But I think those exceptions are a bug and not a feature. I think in 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 line with what you're saying, a lot of people that are going through the deconstruction process haven't actually escaped the attitude and spirit of the places that they're leaving, mm. because you should you don't really have to prescribe 
deconstruction within the Christian faith because yeah. the searching and being searched and uh, searching your motives, uh, analyzing your motives, uh, analyzing the the things that you believe and why you believe them is actually built into a the discipline of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and Absolutely. the scriptures actually recommend that you do that. Uh, they the there's regular arguments made against blindness, dullness of hearing, complacency. Uh, mm-hmm. You know these kinds of things. Like you're not supposed to be uh, just set, you know stuck in your ways. Like that being stuck in your ways and not growing. I mean, what does it say? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Not act like you've already found it. Um, you know, <laughs> blessed are those yeah, who hunger yeah. and thirst for righteousness. Not those who pretend that they're already righteous. Um, it's the implying ones who, a need is there. Exactly, yeah. and that it's not actually ever fully fulfilled. That there is mm-hmm. always that 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 journeying and that continuing on and that and that movement, um, and that w- as soon as you stop moving, you really you're you're not living anymore. That living things right. grow, and if they're not growing, they're not live. And so I do think that a lot of people who have deconstructed see that in the church. They see there's a complacency there. There's prejudice there. They've already decided beforehand how things are going to go. And they do yep. this for reasons of like self-service. And there's mm-hmm. an abusive power dynamic and, and, and all of this pharisaical and legalistic, et cetera. And so they say, that's bad. You guys aren't growing. You guys are complacent. And then right. they leave that church environment and become just really exactly the same, just on a different team. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the fundamentalism and legalism and Phariseeism within the deconstruction movement is as completely rampant as it ever was within the church. It's just a fundamentalism and a legalism and a Phariseeism in a different direction for a different team. Yeah. And that's the weird thing. You have to kind of assert like, no, no, I, I have experienced deconstruction because if that's ended for you, like reconstruction, for a lot of people, that's not true deconstruction. Like if exactly. you did not follow the stereotypical process right. of questioning your faith and ending up as an ex-evangelical or whatever uh-huh. term you'd like, to, you'd like right. um, then you haven't done it right and you've missed some step, which really is hypocritical to the very things they preach, right? Like if I'm exactly. supposed to be critically thinking through everything, what if I've critically thought and arrived at the conclusion that Christ is Lord? Well, if you I, had th- really critically thought, you wouldn't <laughs> right. have come to that conclusion because uh, silly me. we, yes. you know, we keep all the rules for deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to do it right, and there's a way to do it wrong. And if you do it wrong, you best believe we're going to exclude you from our community and use our power dynamics sure. in order to make you shamed in your public setting. It's like, wait, 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 what, 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 mm-hmm. what, what? You know, that sounds a whole lot like what you left. I'll be honest, I, I. It went through, I guess that's like the deconstructionist version of like cage stage cage Calvinist, stage. right? <laughs> it's just on the opposite side. Um, yeah. So when I became a Christian, I was uh, very much into like esoteric interpretations of Christianity. I erred very hard on the side of mysticism. And there's a lot to value in each expression of Christianity. Um, but I erred in a side of elevating my expression 
which was very loosely tethered to Orthodox Christian faith as being the primary expression. And if I looked at my family, who are more conservative than me at the time, and still are to some degree, or my friends who were Christians, but they weren't Christians in the broad sense that I was, I would look down on them, not Mm. maybe consciously, but in the way that I would speak to them and the way that I would conduct any sort of dialogue or debate, like it always ended with me feeling like they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Unless they went through the journey that I went through, unless they experienced the spiritual abuse that I experienced, then mm-hmm. they would know what I know. And in a sense, that's its own sort of Gnosticism, right? Like secret knowledge. Because right. my experience as a Christian who deconstructed because of an institutional failure, then I know something that a Christian who has never doubted in their life and has had a steady uh, story of faith, which is a gift from God, instead of appreciating that expression as a gift and that person's own uh, uh, experience with Christ as valid, I'm telling them, no, 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 you just don't get it. And that's, right. and that's especially coming from that perspective, you kind of assume, well, I'm the one who's loving people in the correct way. You know, my um, restrictions are super, super lax. And it's just about love and acceptance and, um, you know, good vibes and crap like that. And I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I really did not practice that in action. It was all speech. And so I'm thankful that, um, you know, the Lord showed me, actually, <laughs> um, you know, that's no different than being a Pharisee. It's just a Pharisee of a different stripe. So. Yeah. Ultimately, it's selfish. Mm-hmm. I don't really respect, and I'm just going to be honest, I don't respect people who go through a quote-unquote deconstruction if they aren't actually willing to sacrifice anything personally for that. Mm. And I have known people who go through a deconstruction and they have had to sacrifice relationships and other things like that in order to do it. And I and I don't think, and, and it wasn't always, in these very rare cases, and this is actually not very common for me, in those very rare cases where I've seen this, it also wasn't because they had some sin problem or some personal pet thing that they were trying to protect or pursue. If you've got all sorts of uh, you know vested interests, vested ideas, personal perspectives and selfishnesses, you're just gonna take those with you wherever you go. And right. that, that yeah. self-serving attitude is, I think, at the heart of what was so ugly to most people within the Christian communities that they left and mm-hmm. deconstructed from. And you don't just get out of those environments and be free of the ways in mm-hmm. which they molded and shaped you. Um, you have to be right. more considerate that that same spirit of self-serving um, is probably in you and needs to be addressed pretty directly. And until that is direct, addressed, any of the uh, the window trappings of your intellectual perspectives, I, I don't know that that's really going to do very much to, to change fundamentally uh, the spirit of your overall uh, life <laughs> and being. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's a big reason why uh, this topic is so contentious, especially in the church, um, because I think people are talking past each other a lot of mm-hmm. the time. Like, I'm assuming that someone like Rachel Held Evans, who uh, seems to have had a really honest uh, bout of questioning and did so with integrity, if I'm coming into that conversation assuming that by deconstruction or by doubt, she means an excuse for her sin, mm-hmm. then I'm going to totally treat that conversation as if 
I already know what she's going to say before she says it. And right. that's fundamentally unhelpful. And in the same, in the reverse, like if I'm assuming that someone is critically thinking and like really looking at the veracity of what they believe and they're actually just trying to per- like perpetuate a desire that they already have decided is going to be a thing that they do, then I'm not going to get anywhere talking with them. And they're not going to get anywhere trying to convince me because we're talking past each other. So I think one of the things that we can do in the church, um, even talking to ex-evangelicals or anybody on that spectrum of deconstruction is to just define our terms. Like what Mm -hmm. does deconstruction mean to you? As we've discussed, there's a whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to have productive conversations about this sort of thing, we really have to take the time to be humble and ask people where they're coming from and not just assume that my particular definition is your definition. I agree. And to dig down and actually ask, are you, do you have these issues for, for one of three reasons? Like, and this is true. We have to ask these questions. One, What's the most important thing to you? What is true, what is good, or what is right? Hmm. Why are you coming to the conclusions you're coming to? Do you, is, your, is your primary motivation to find the truth? Is your primary motivation to find the good life? Or is your primary, primary motivation to do what is right? Those are three very different motivations. And most people, especially because we live in an intellectualistic and scientific age, will say, oh, I just care about the truth, whatever it is. And that's actually no, not true I don't in most think cases it is a lot it's of not the time. true i'll yeah. admit it myself yeah yeah it's not well it for for the vast majority of people what is true is not the primary reason why they make decisions or come to particular mm-hmm. conclusions um look and both within the church and outside the church i think that assessing what our what what it is that we're actually seeking what it is that's driving us is it a pursuit of truth mm-hmm. that's driving you is it a pursuit of goodness that's driving you or is it a pursuit of righteousness that's driving you and if you're able to like actually pinpoint one of which of those three it is i think that there's going to be a whole lot less of talking past one another mm-hmm. yeah for sure hey there renew the arts podcast listeners We'll get right back to connecting the deconstruction process to the arts, but first, I want to thank our community of monthly donors. Your consistent contributions make the work we do at Renew the Arts possible. I'm so grateful for your partnership as we cultivate Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit renewthearts.org forward slash donate. If you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or a tender. One of the keys to this uh, is the arts, and I think it's because the art, the arts typically are affectional, which mm-hmm. means that most of the time artists are addressing things affectionally. And so this, this is what that ends up looking like. Um, and, and, you know, Abby, tell me if you think that this is accurate, but what I've seen is since artists address things and assess things affectionately, they'll be in a church environment in an ugly building with, uh, PowerPoint slides, uh, you know, for your, you know, with sans serif, terrible fonts, you know, or times new <laughs> so Roman, vivid. <laughs> uh, and the, they, they're in some sort of like a warehouse structure and the songs that they're singing are shallow and stupid and repetitive. And then the guy gets up there and he's basically like a rah, rah, rah cheerleader type. 
and he gives you, you know, some really pablum, really like, you know, worse than philosophy 101 or theology 101 stuff, like really just childish and again, repetitive uh, stuff that doesn't really help you very much to think about your life or come to any kind of conclusions. And then afterwards, you have some bad coffee with some people who don't seem to really care all that much about you, although they say how you're doing and then don't wait to hear the answer. And, um, you know, these kinds of things, right? So, if you're a if you're a person who is motivated by trying to find the right thing to do, and you think that going to church is right, then you'll keep doing that. Uh, you'll keep doing that over and over again, and you'll actually think, you know, this is this is what is right to do, and we're supposed to go to church, and so I'm going to church, and I'm grinning, you know, I'm gritting my teeth, and I'm bearing through it, and I'm and I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is my righteousness before God, and my religious, you know, service before God, and that that's worthwhile even if it's not, you know, the most whatever meaningful thing to me. If you're all about truth, however, and you're in that environment, you're probably going to find a church that's more sermon-oriented, right? But you're still going to have this issue, whether you're in that church or in the warehouse church, you're still going to have this issue of what about the beauty, though? So if you're an affectional person, you tend to be really just not into it. You can't find a way into it, right? Mm -hmm. Where you go to it and you say, oh, this this is ugly, this is just ugly. And I can't, I can't get my, I can't, I don't know why anybody's into this. Um, and the, the truth of it and the, the rightness of it is not really what's so important to you. So what I find is artists are regularly in this kind of a position where they'll do it for a length of time, especially if they think it's right. But they always have this feeling like something's off here. This is ugly. This isn't um, authentic. This isn't honest. And it certainly isn't beautiful. And um, it's Folgers. Yes, it That's is. What it yeah. is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Folgers yeah. in a you know bun percolator. And so <laughs> and so you know we have this happen over and over again. I mean, I talk to artists all the time, and this is this is something that I hear very regularly. If they have the will to stay, they will. But even then, oftentimes they feel hypocritical or uh, two-faced mm-hmm. that internally they really, really hate it. But this is the only job I can get is playing praise and worship music on Sunday mornings, you know, this kind of stuff. And you just feel so sad and so hard for them. Um, but at the same time, it, it makes a lot of sense why so many of them should not only be on the fringes of the uh, church community in terms of their own personal perspective on what's going on within the, the you know Sunday service and the church mm-hmm. community generally, that it's not presenting the picture of the good life as far as they can tell. But also then going from the other direction, their concerns, their issues, their disconnects, their their problems end up feeling like doubts, suspicions by the church at large, the mainstream, mm-hmm. you know, leadership. And so the, that leadership ends up viewing those artists as like, you're always naysaying, you're always a stick in the mud, you're never really on board with these things, you're always critical, mm-hmm. you're always feeling like we're not, you know, measuring up. Um, and not only that, you know, you're leading people to question and to uh, try to better this environment in such a way that you're destabilizing the security and the the you know the maintenance of our uh, congregation. And yeah, that's a bunch of bunk. <laughs> that often turns into anti-intellectualism at the heart of it. It's like, well, because you're destabilizing the ecosystem of whatever we've got going on here with Folgers, you know, community church. Um, mm-hmm. Then it's like if you've 
if you're disturbing that, then, um, you know, the problem is, is that you're thinking those things, not necessarily anything wrong with the institution or nothing needs to be kind of like rethought. Um, in that sense, the deconstruction makes sense, right? Like mm-hmm. rethinking some of those things and assessing like, is that really the best expression that we could pursue? And sometimes that even looks like adopting more orthodox or liturgical practices. But then to just say that, you know, if you're questioning those things or analyzing them and think want to suggest a better path uh that you know that's yeah i don't know <laughs> but it does that, that puts me in a flurry I mean, that, that puts me in a, it's good though to destabilize I, I agree but only if you think like destabilization is necessary for growth but if yeah, you're if your right. attitude is more maintenance of the status quo mm-hmm. and not uh growth and movement then you start thinking that people who are calling for growth and movement, for progress, shall we say, progressive, hmm, um, these people are really dangerous. They're dangerous voices. Because it is true, if you feel like you're in the right spot and someone's asking you to move, you know, the conservative mindset would say, hey, I, I, I don't know what I'll mess up if I move. Mm-hmm. Right, like if right. I if I start to investigate this or to overturn this, and I'm open to the possibility that something else might be true here, will I even have any of my faith left at the end of it? I just think that's a small view of God. Like, how much can we trust God? Can we trust Him with our churches? Can we trust Him with uh, to lead us into all truth? Ultimately, I think so. I mean, he's proved it time and time again. And like Chesterton talks about, you know, the church has died many, many times, but it believes in resurrection. And Mm -hmm. so unless you're, you know, unless the stream is uh, only the dead thing goes with the stream, right? That's Chesterton Mm -hmm. too. So I think you do need those sort of rabble rousers and Brennan Brennan Manning would call them ragamuffins, right? Mm -hmm. Shaking things up in the church um, because it's, I think it's the people who are really resistant to that sort of thing, which have fostered the current ecosystem of rampant doubt and deconstruction that we currently have because that healthy sense of questioning and reassessment and examining things according to scripture for what it actually says that stuff has been poo-pooed for the last 30 to 40 years of evangelicalism so in a way and this is the more you know charitable read on the deconstruction movement in a way you cannot blame people for being frustrated and saying hey a bunch of this is like serious bunk and we have Mm -hmm. to like we have to reassess everything that's going on. I can't blame them. <laughs> I, don't I don't blame know. them. I don't blame them. That that is that is something that I think needs to be addressed within the church for sure. And unfortunately, a lot of the artists that are being pushed out of the church would help the church to address it. Right. Um, Absolutely. The, and so I I do actually it's it's this very strange thing and I agree 100% with you that this lack of trust and this grasping at power and this grasping at the status quo this grasping at trying to keep things the way that they are even when the holy spirit is moved on mm-hmm. um has created huge huge problems because what ends up happening is all right in order to maintain security I got to get these people who might actually be able to help us progress I got to get them out I got to push mm-hmm. them out and and right. what and and when you push them out, then what ends up happening is you have a situation like David Bazan or Derek Webb or all these other guys who end up apostatizing. You know, mm-hmm. that's what that's what it, you know that's what you call it. Um, you know, yeah. rejecting yeah. rejecting the faith. 
And then at that point, the people who pushed them out say, see, that's what they were this yes. whole time. Uh-huh. And so it ends up becoming this sort of self-realizing fear. Um, because I ask back to them, I say, well, what would have happened if Derek Webb had felt like he had a place within mm-hmm. this community to challenge and to unsettle? What if David Bazan had felt like he had a place with this, it, within this community to challenge and unsettle? If he actually, um, if his questions were taken seriously, if his desire mm-hmm. to improve and to move were taken seriously, and people had actually, again, moved in faith, knowing that God is, it's, it's God's arms underneath us, right? It's underneath right. are the everlasting arms. There's got to be this confidence that we can move because God mm-hmm. is actually there, you know, and he's not going to let us fall in such a way that we're going to, like, completely and utterly lose it. And even if he did, like you said, you know, He'd raise us up. He would, he, you know, righteous falls seven times and seven times he rises. We, mm-hmm. we, would, we don't have anything really to worry about. And so it, right. it becomes clear that the church's grasp on its own power, which you see in like Christian nationalism and all the rest of this nonsense has been going on. Oh, for sure. Um, is, is really just a complete rejection already within the church of faith in Christ, of faith in mm-hmm. God. So it's like who's actually rejecting faith in God? Those who are being honest that they've left the church and that they no longer can believe in Jesus or those who pretend to stay in the church but don't actually exercise faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the problem is not just uh, those who are outside and deconstructing. I, I think actually that lack of, the lack of faith, the rejection of faith mm-hmm. goes all the way. It's all the way across, yeah. whichever side you you're talking about. You can see this in the way that people talk about deconstruction um, in the church especially in regard to people who are currently going through it or have gone through it, that they're almost like marked in a sense. Uh-huh. Like, oh, that person doubted. Gotta or like, out. oh, that person's like kind of tarnished. You know, they have mm-hmm. that like uh, red scarlet letter, you know, mm-hmm. on them. The um, D, the scarlet D. Right, the scarlet D, <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah, I think you can definitely tell just in the way that we talk about deconstruction as a whole in the church. Um, there's a lot of uh, lack of grace, I think. And this is where I think the conversation gets nuanced because you want to call the spade of willful disobedience a spade. You know, uh-huh. you want to talk about it in plain language. And a lot of the time, whether people like it or not, the, tr- the reality is that evidently people who are going through deconstruction go through a very stereotypical process and end mm-hmm. up at a very predictable end. But... That is not to say that in that journey, they have not been spurred along by really bad theology in the church and really bad uh, interpersonal communication between people of faith who look at those people and condemn them for not walking the white line um, that they assume is how faith works. I mean, <laughs> find me one uh, one church father or saint or martyr who didn't have a period of the dark night of the soul, who didn't mm-hmm. walk in a very um, scattered and, I mean, just look at Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, Christian mm-hmm. goes literally everywhere and he's stumbling back again and he's moving forward. But I think, in, especially in the evangelical church, we kind of assume it's got to look like the straight line, like you get mm-hmm. saved when you're four and then mm-hmm. you are, you know, doing prayer at the flag in high school and then eventually you uh get 
married, have kids, become an elder or a pastor's wife, and then you die. And like, mm -hmm. that's how it is. And it's actually the, the fight of faith, and it is a fight a lot of the time, mm -hmm. is arduous and hard. And when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, as Bonhoeffer yeah, said. Bonhoeffer, and yeah. that's not gonna look linear. Mm -mm. And so I think we do people a disservice when we assume that it looks linear, but also I think we do people a disservice when we ascribe to them motivations that they don't actually have. That's right. That's true. And I mean, I experienced this. I, I've always been really curious. I've always been really uh, inquisitive. So when I was a, a very small mm. child, I was already asking questions that were uh, uncomfortable for my teachers and my parents too. <laughs> so and, was I. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm sure. And so, and then I, I don't know if you had the same experience, but it was very strange. I truly was just curious. And so they mm -hmm. would say things and then they would say another thing. And I think, well, if that's true and that's true, then what does that mean about this? And I'd ask, I'd ask a question trying to compose and synthesize the things that they were trying to teach me. And they mm -hmm. would not take it as an as as an inquiry, they took it as a challenge. Yeah, isn't that so weird? I mean, it's, how old were you? Uh, four, five, six. I mean, it happened. It's it's been going on since then, so thirty whatever years. <laughs> yeah, that's really wild. When I was probably seven or eight, I remember being in a Sunday school class, and the guy who was teaching it, I don't I don't know if he was a pastor, I think he was just like a general Sunday school teacher, but he was teaching us out of, um, I don't remember, is it first or second Timothy where Paul is talking about how elders can't imbibe alcohol. Mm -hmm. And first of all, weird passage to be teaching seven and eight year olds. Um, but he was telling us, you know, and this is why like you can't have any alcohol ever. And I come well, from a big Italian family. Must be like, like addicted to wine. Right, it says right. elders and are I, not to be addicted to wine, and, and then it says deacons not addicted to much wine. And he was so. like, cool, this is also for <laughs> seven and eight-year-olds. And right. so I come from a big Italian family, and we've always had wine on the dinner table. You know, my grandpa's like, you need a glass of red wine, it's good for the blood. And so I've always experienced that as like a norm. So when this guy is telling me like, oh, actually in scripture, like it says you can't, you know, this is why we say you can't drink alcohol, I was like, excuse me, like there's a ton of verses where Paul is telling Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach and things like that. And wine was made to gladden the heart of man. And I'm mm -hmm. like seven and eight years old. I'm just like this girl in a Sunday school class debating mm -hmm. this like 45 year old guy. And mm -hmm. he is like looking at me not as like a student or like a little girl. He's looking at me like a theological opponent. Mm -hmm. And like we're having, this is like debate class or something. Mm -hmm. And he singled me out and it was just super weird. Mm -hmm. But that told me from a young age because I had a lot of people in the church kind of look at me as like somehow they're equal all of a sudden mm -hmm. on an intellectual plane. That kind of taught me, if you're gonna think like this, we're gonna shut you down. If you're yep. gonna question stuff and you're gonna be yep. inquisitive, that's not welcome. Like imbibe what we're telling you, you can imbibe that. Um, but you can't, if you question it, then you're sort of going rogue and you're ultimately derailing the whole the whole program. And I, I could never, I was too much of a rebel to really, you know, accept that. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah, agreed. And, and in many ways, I think it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of bandwagoning and performative uh, like posturing that is connected to a lot of this, which again, it's like, I don't mind if you're an inquisitive and challenging person, uh, like 
if that's just the nature, you 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 are curious and you want to know, mm-hmm. and you're asking those questions for that reason. But there's also a lot of like performance and posturing, and you can tell Definitely. by the emptiness and the shallowness of some of the questions that are being asked within the deconstruction arena, where you're like, wait, mm-hmm. this isn't even your question. This isn't right, even your right. desire. This isn't even or, your thing. Um, there's an answer for that that yeah. has been circulating for about for 2,000 years. years. Right. And the fact that you're feigning ignorance is really interesting because you could find that with a quick Google search or True. like on gotquestions.com or something yeah, exactly. like that, you know? Right. This is a it's good discussion. I want to get into, uh, is there a way of addressing this that's healthier than we've addressed it? both within the church and for those people who may be going through the deconstruction process. How do you think the arts might actually be able to address some of this deconstruction uh, issue in a healthy or more healthy way? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that I think the unhealthy version of that is art that is self-serving and self-indulgent in nature. And you can kind Mm -hmm. of tell based off, you know, kind of the experience of that art. Like you can tell when art is for the artist or when it's trying to touch on something or express something or explore or inquire um, towards something that is outside of themselves. And so I think the self-serving art, that's not helpful. And unfortunately, there's a lot of art surrounding the concepts that are in deconstruction that is really self-serving like that. So I don't think that stuff is super helpful. You can usually just well, tell. <laughs> I'm going to ask think you it's to hard. be a little more specific just so that we can sure. be... Uh, yeah, so w- what's a piece of art that you think actually is within this realm of the deconstruction realm that you think is self-serving? I think that's a great question. I think uh, David Bazan's record is kind of like that. Curse your branches. branches. Yeah, when what, I was... What indicates um, in, to you that? Because I don't think that he carries the idea anywhere. He kind of throws up his hands and goes, well... That's it. And like this stuff was all a bunch of BS and uh, that's it. I will say this. The record does end on a more agnostic note with the song In Stitches. And Mm -hmm. I think that song in particular makes the album way more palatable for me. But it's definitely the record that when I was a young Christian and mostly angry about the fact that I was becoming a Christian, like Lewis, I was a very reluctant convert. Um, Uh That was the record that I would put on to um, be in my feels, so to speak. And so for me, and that, honestly, that could just be my experience of it, but I think that the record lends to that sort of approach to it. Um, Sort of like an insular, insulated, circular, kind of never really progressing kind of attitude or spirit. Exactly. If it's... It's an Ouroboros. I'm kind of, I just don't think that there's a lot of point to that. Now, I think that there's really good um, art that is questioning and sort of deconstructionist in a way. Um, I think Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, that novel, that's an mm-hmm. incredible story. I think Shusako Endo's um, mm-hmm. Silence, Silence, which talks about apostasy. I think Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. I think mm-hmm. these things that really wrestle with questions and very, um, I mean, existentially faithful questions, but also just blatant, like raw emotional ones. I think those are fair and we should learn from that stuff. Absolutely. So I think there's an unhealthy expression of it, but I think there's a healthy one. And I think George MacDonald is also a good example of more of the healthy side because I don't 
I certainly don't agree with some of his theological conclusions. Um, he was a universalist. I'm definitely not. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we understand like his sort of the framework of his theology, I mean, he grew up under a father who was um, a Calvinist and very abrasive and pretty much abusive. And he wrote to counteract a lot of that, I think. So while he was a universalist and he did write that way, he also did so through phenomenal fiction. And so Mm -hmm. I remember, again, being a young Christian and very reluctantly so, and reading George MacDonald's Lilith, which Mm -hmm. if you want to question the the, um, orthodox interpretations of Genesis, go ahead (laughs) and read Lilith because a lot of Christians, I'm sure, would probably go, whoa, I can't believe he's suggesting there was a woman before Eve. Um, But it's a great novel. Ancient apocryphal perspective. Oh, sure. But it's certainly not an evangelical one. No, 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 Um, no. Yeah. So I, I remember reading that and... That did not give me any straightforward theological suppositions. It didn't try to argue me into faith. It didn't try to say, well, obviously it's Christ and it's none of these other gods. It didn't come at me from a rational perspective. And this is kind of what we were talking about earlier. It came at me Mm -hmm. in my affections. And in reading Lilith, I got to the end of that book and I thought, if this is what Christianity is, not, you know, the literal plot or the characters mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, the world mm-hmm. of that storyline, if the emotion and the affections underlying the story, if this is Christianity, I want it to be true. Like, not just, oh, yeah, it's true. And like, I sent to that as like a rational thing, or that's kind of just the religion I've chosen. It's no, I want it to be true. Right. It's so beautiful to me that is that true? Could that really be. be how God loves me? Mm-hmm. Does Is God really willing to fight for me through my bitterness and my doubt and willing to, you know, show me the, the holes in his hands mm-hmm. and to help me open my clenched fists over my mm-hmm. sin and who I think that I am? Is, is he really, does he love me that much? And right. so when it comes to like good art about around deconstruction and reconstruction, I think the really good stuff speaks to that affection. It is not overtly evangelistic. It's not make the kids go watch God not God's not dead one two three four five six or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. write write a good story that talks about who the character of Christ is and who we are in response to that. And that is, I think, the step that we need to take as artists to, I don't, I don't even think overtly evangelistically, just because we can't not speak about Christ this way, because that's who he is. Right. And it's interesting, too, what you're saying, because there, it's not unrelated that George MacDonald's perspective on universalism has to do with his affectional disposition. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the, the reality is the idea of hell is ugly. Mm-hmm. It, it just is ugly. Um, I remember when I was younger reading through Isaiah and you get to the very end of the book of Isaiah and and it's this, you know, vision of the new heavens and new earth and it's really, really beautiful and it's really, really amazing. But the book itself ends on this really dour note of mm-hmm. uh, looking over the wall basically and out outside of the dogs and wailing and gnashing of teeth and you know where they are tormented and their worm does not die. And you're like, how do you end a vision like that in that way? Yeah. Because that's the end of the book. And um, I, was always, I was always troubled by that. 
as a as a young person and, st- and still am to be totally honest i i i think that you and i probably agree ultimately but it is an interesting thing that mm-hmm. i would never i would never deny that george mcdonald's perspective is how could a loving god do something so horrible and so ugly and mm-hmm. that's a question that should be can be asked whether you come to the same yeah. conclusion that he does yep. It actually is a good question. How could a loving God do something so ugly? Because it's ugly. It is mm-hmm. actually an ugly right. thing. And mm-hmm. and but when you recognize that the that the issue he has with it is an issue of the affections rather than an issue of the truth. That like for yeah. him, it's mm-hmm. an affectional problem, and that is the central thing for him. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of people will say, well, it's true. Facts don't care about your feelings. And you know what I mean? So it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether or not it's ugly or beautiful because it's the truth. Um, you know, and a lot of people have the same attitude concerning right and wrong. And I think that it's it, like you were saying earlier about talking past each other. I think that's one of the reasons why so much talking past each other actually happens. That mm-hmm. if, in fact, George sure. MacDonald could be shown that though the though, though hell might be the, the idea of hell might be ugly in this sense. In the end, the idea of hell is actually maintaining or preserving something of great value and beauty, mm-hmm. um, which is what how kind of how C.S. Lewis came around to it. Again, C.S. Right. Lewis as kind of a a, a pupil of George MacDonald's in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he comes in and he says, well, without hell, you don't have free will. And is not free right. will actually in some sense the ultimate benefit the ultimate value if it's for freedom that christ set us free then universalism in some ways is as deterministic as calvinism yeah as the harshest of calvinists you know it's like you Mm -hmm. don't really have a choice in the end uh one way or the other and um and so it's like how in that way how is universalism all that different from hyper calvinism well it really isn't and that's kind of what lewis got to and so he's saying actually george mcdonald hell isn't ugly if 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 its necessity is preserving the freedom of humankind which you would say in some sense is the highest good Mm -hmm. um and so Yeah. yeah so you you i i think that argument works better because it's actually an affectional argument um Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I guess when I when I look at these things, I think there's no real fundamental disagreement between any of these things, whether you have an affectional Mm -hmm. or a volitional or an intellectual approach to these things. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, it'll be a little bit of each. Yes. Then if you Mm -hmm. pursue Jesus and your first thing is, well, what is right? Well, you're going to find the way. You know, right. and if your first, and if your question is, well, what is truth? Well, you're going to find the truth. And if your question mm-hmm. is, well, what is good? Well, you're going to find the life. And right. and in all three of those areas, you know, you're eventually going to end up in the same place if, if given enough time, given a large enough scope. And um, I think because of that, there's no real need to fear the value and the power of the arts within the church. Because even if there are those kind of distinctions, right, where it's like hell is ugly, mm-hmm. yes, but it's true, all right? Okay, so you're going to have that conflict in the short term uh, because the affectional person is going to say, I don't like hell, but the you mm-hmm. know intellectual or the volitional person is going to say, yeah, but it's right or just, or yeah, but it's true anyway, even if you don't like it. Um, the, uh, the, the overcoming of that conflict really in a, in a lot of ways is going to come through the artists. 
right? Right. It is. Yeah. Like it's going to come through making those affectional arguments to people who have affectional problems. No, I think the uh, way that that plays out really well is through story, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying with uh, pro-choice arguments, like basically what everybody's doing on either side of the aisle on the issue is saying what they believe to be a flourishing life, like what constitutes flourishing Mm -hmm. in a human life. And that's a story, Mm -hmm. ultimately. And so what I think... Um, there's an author, Daniel Taylor. He wrote a couple of really great books. If you're looking for sort of the rationalistic, logical approach, um, The Myth of Certainty and mm-hmm. The Skeptical Believer are two really great books that were a huge encouragement to me. Um, but Daniel Taylor is also great because he writes a lot of fiction books. Uh, the first in a series uh, being called Death Comes to the Deconstructionist. So don't be too scared off by that. But what yeah. I think he does really well <laughs> is a gonna, great... He's trying to put them to death? <laughs> well, well, you'll, you have Capital to read the book. Capital punishment for the deconstruction. <laughs> Hell is ugly. Um, so what he does really well is he comes at it from that sort of logical approach, the rationalizing of faith and such. But then he's, he puts it in story as well, his same beliefs. So if you want a dual approach, you've got it in Daniel Taylor. But what he really talks about in The Skeptical Believer that really encouraged me, and I'll tell you from my perspective of what I kind of digested from that, is that at the end of the day, when all of my axioms have been exhausted and my grip on Christ is weak. His grip on me isn't weak, but my when my grip on him is weak, I stay in the story. And that's what Daniel Taylor says in The Skeptical Believer. Like, at the end of the day, do you believe that the Christian faith, the Christian story of what the Bible tells us is the flourishing life, which is the life lived in Christ? If you believe that that story is so beautiful and so interesting, and so laden with some with enough mystery and enough uh, intricacy that you look at it and you marvel. Is it enough to spend your whole life trying to use your experience as a litmus test of if it's true for you? And I say, yeah. Like at the very end of the day, when all of my intellectual arguments and my affections and all these things are exhausted. Is the story beautiful enough for me to say, I'll risk my life as a litmus test for it? Yeah, it is. And so as artists, when we think about that, how are we showing that litmus test through imagination and creativity? I think that is the thing that is going to be more of an evangelistic open hand than anything overt like Pure Flix is putting out or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately it's speaking to a flourishing explanation. What is a flourishing life? Is it the life in Christ? Is it not? Let's ask those questions. And if we can do so in a creative way, that's ultimately the purpose of creativity, right? It's expression, but expression opening its hand outstretched for something. Right. I think if we can both describe and embody the good life, Mm-hmm. That will make such a big difference. And honestly, that's a lot of what we're trying to do with Porchlight. We're yeah, trying to invite yeah. people in to taste and see. I mean, that's the issue. Like we were trying to convince people with propositional arguments of the beauty of the Christian life. And mm-hmm. it's like, why are you doing that? Like, just just live the Christian live life. Live the Christian life and show them how beautiful it is. Right, right. And Stay I in think the story. <laughs> 
And so much of why there's so much deconstruction, et cetera, going on within the church is because, and I'll just say it, the church is not embodying the good life, generally yeah. speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live how most Christians live. I simply don't. It's not attractive to me. Um, and I don't think it's attractive to most anybody. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is very often shallow and fake, and I don't like it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not like, you know, people are like, oh, well, that's really, really mean. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it, that I, I, it's hard to deny that the church is not having a terribly salty impact that, that in some ways the salt has lost its flavor. There's not a savor there. Uh, people, there's a reason why so much deconstruction and deconversion is occurring. Like mm-hmm. it, and and you gotta say like well what's that reason you know it, and and I I would say if the church if judgment's going to begin within the household of God that the household of God could do a lot to say hey how can we alter and grow so that we can actually address the deconstruction and deconversion that's going on and if what we're saying is true that a lot of this deconstruction and deconversion is affectional in nature then the solution to it is going to also be affectional. If sure. they're leaving the church because the church is ugly, then how might the church keep them and nurture and cultivate them? Maybe by investing in beauty. Like mm-hmm. being like and I don't I, I don't think that this means like, oh okay, so you're saying we need more illustrations in our sermons and we need more <laughs> art on the walls of the church. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not actually mm-hmm. saying that. I'm not saying like that we need to um weaponize art uh for some kind of propositional purpose. I mean that we need to be embodying the good life because Jesus did. Yeah. People wanted to Absolutely. hang out with Jesus. Like people were willing to hang out with Jesus when it wasn't actually, you know, societally of benefit to them to do so. Mm-hmm. When they had right. to like leave right. everything they knew and loved in order to do it. Why? Because he is such a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm about to cry thinking about Jesus. But he is such a a just like a compelling person. And the life that he calls us to is so beautiful and so compelling. And I think that when it's presented in 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 that real and embodied way, it really does have an impact. I and I've seen it. I've seen it over and over mm-hmm. again. You know, I think beauty is such an underrated apologetic. I mean, it's been the strongest po- apologetic in my life. It's mm-hmm. the good and the true and the beautiful that work together mm-hmm. in the trinity in the trinitarian way that they do. Um, to woo the human soul in the work that God is doing in, in your life. I really think that that's true. And it, for me, it was beauty and hospitality for sure. It was people telling the story with their lives, not necessarily like, you know, forcing me to do devotions at 5 p.m. or something like right, that right, with right. them. It was them inviting me into their home, like you said, providing good food and creating a narrative for this is what life is like in the body of Christ. like. As much as it's full of really awful stuff on top of that, and a lot of hypocrisy and pharisaicalism and, um, I don't know, just a bunch of sin, (laughs) at the same time, it's the bride of Christ. And Mm -hmm. there's beauty as much as there is ugliness, but it's the beauty that is the internal component. 
-hmm. that's why nothing moves the human soul like beauty does. Abby and I discussed what song we wanted to use to close out this episode, and we both agreed that the track Oh Sweetest Name from John Van Dusen's I Am Origami Part 4 Marathon Days would be perfect. That's quite a mouthful. So I reached out to John and he graciously permitted us to use the track. We hope it blesses you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you return next month for another episode of the Renew the Arts podcast. Driving drunk in the night with one headlight